Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today my guest is one well-rounded guy. Also probably one of the first people you'd want around you if you were dropped in the middle of nowhere and had to survive. Keely Union is a photographer for National Geographic, a Neotero storytelling fellow. He's also a kayak builder and guide and spent years learning survival skills. He's perhaps best known for his stories about polar regions and the indigenous communities that live there. It comes at least in part from his own ancestry of being Nanai and Chinese American. I had a long conversation with Keeley, longer than one episode can fit. What you'll hear today is just part one of our conversation. Here's his story. Uh, photojournalist, I mean, that's one of the many hats that you wear, photographer. Just just how many passports have you been through as a photographer in the last X number of years? <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, I guess four, but that's not, that, necess- that doesn't have to do necessarily with filling them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may have lost a passport or two okay. <laughs> in the wilds. Yeah, it's a lot easier to find them when you can retrace your steps not through, um, not in the forest or on the tundra. <laughs> yes, uh, occupational hazards, you might say. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> I, I've gotten better about it, though. Um, I now carry um, two passports, which is a, a rare and unusual thing that most people don't do, but I, I do it knowing that sometimes I there's the possibility that I can get myself stuck somewhere. And um, so, yeah, I always have a second passport on my person so that, it, that uh, it's a good backup insurance. I didn't uh, know that was even a possibility that you could do such a thing. I, I'm, we're not we're not incriminating you right now on this, on this podcast. With no, no, with, no, 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 no. <laughs> it, it's totally fine. Um, I picked up my second passport actually because uh, I had to apply for a visa for Russia, and um, in the process, if you when you're applying for certain types of visas uh, overseas. If you need to let go of your passport for a certain amount of time in order to get a visa, but you still need to travel mm. with that passport, uh, under those conditions, you can show the State Department that um, basically you need a second passport because the, the Russian visa takes quite a long time to get. Mm. Uh, um, and it has to sit at the consulate for a long time. So um, under the circumstances, I can apply for another one. And since I travel so much, mm-hmm. um, uh, it was actually not that difficult for me to get, um, but it was helpful because um, I had a travel document company helping me deal with the um, deal with the logistics. Right, makes total sense. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's there's a lot of stuff I think we can talk about today. A lot of stuff I'm really excited to get into. You know, you've done some incredible photography work. Uh, there's the, the kayak building. There's the survival skills, but. I want to start first with a bit of personal context for things. And I thought a good place to start might be with your namesake, uh, Keeley. Where does it come from? Oh, yeah, right. Um, great. Well, um, yeah, so Keeley is, uh, is the, the name of the, the Nanai Transformer hero. Um, so Nanai um, are my ancestors, and um, they are the group of people that lives along the borders of uh, China and Russia in far east Siberia. Uh, for us, uh, Keeley is a really common name. And it's also, it's a, kind of the equivalent of John. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really common. It's actually both the first name and a last name. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's one of the, one of the names of um, 
major families or clans um, for the Nanaim, and it's also just a, a really common name. But 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 Keeley is the name of our our hero. Um, also, just he happens to be um, the person that at the at the very beginning of things made a lot. The very beginning um, of the Nanaim people made a lot of things happen including um, saving the village from starvation by bringing the fish back and riding on the backs of orcas. He was kind of our Ulysses. Yeah, okay, yeah. So if yeah. you come across another Keeley, you know, when, at an airport or somewhere else, it's, it's kind of like a dead giveaway that, that they're Nanai or, or someone along the way has been denying their family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's true. And um, I I say also the uh, technically the right way to pronounce it is actually Kiei. Okay. Kiei, which is um, so you, you probably are unlikely to, to run into someone that's a Keeley. It just so happens that that uh, I guess it's been Americanized, as it were. Right. That's, uh... <laughs> and it's just it's just easier for people to say. Right. 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 Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of America, you're you're based in Seattle mm-hmm. these days. Uh, were you always in the area, or did you grow up elsewhere in the states? Oh no, I grew up all over the place. Um, yeah, I was born in Maryland, um, and then moved over to. Um, Manchuria when I was very young, uh, grew up partially a, a little bit over in China and then came back to the U.S. Um, on, on, grew up all over the place from the rural regions of El Paso, Texas to, to the forests of Queens, New York. <laughs> <laughs> so travel has always been a thing or always been a reality. I mean, how much of that do you think factors into what you're doing today? Oh yeah, that that nomadicism is definitely in my family. There's no doubt about that. Um, and yeah, I mean yeah, that has a lot to do with uh, it's 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 definitely made me who I am today. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think growing up and having moved every few years um, has made a huge difference. I, and I, like my entire life, I never stayed put for more than three years until really I got to Seattle. And even even since I've been in Seattle here for the last seven years or so i haven't actually stayed put it's just that i have one address <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how did you respond to that as a kid moving all the time i mean it can be tough to pick up and relocate and have to make new friends all over again was there a resistance to wanting to move all the time or was it just kind of a, a reality what was you know normal you know i don't remember very well um, I, I seem to recall that and I, there was a little bit of resistance uh, uh, when i was i don't know maybe like eight to 12, somewhere in there that, that I, mean, I had a little bit of a hard time with it. But, but I, I think, you know, that's all I know, really. Yeah. I grew up moving all the time. So in a way, it, it really made me into who I am because it got really, really good at being able to go to a new place and to meet new people uh, and not to be afraid of meeting new people and, um, going to uh, a new school mm-hmm. and um, kind of figuring things out wherever it is that I was. Um, what's actually in a lot of ways, I think taking me a long time to, to wrap my head around is how to, how to have really long-term relationships, how to keep those relationships up, you know, and how all the love and care that goes into to knowing people for a long time. It's such a, it's such a different thing. And um, I really love it and cherish it now, but it, it's taken me, quite a long time to recognize how much um how much effort yeah and care you have to put into uh people in the long term in order to make that that happen so that's a that's an ongoing journey (laughs) right 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 because otherwise i mean there's kind of this ingrained idea that uh 
well, and everything is temporary and, and fleeting, but there's this idea that, you know, two or three years from now, maybe, maybe I'm going to be somewhere else again and somewhere else again, or these people are going to be somewhere else again. I could see how that would be uh, something to, to have to work with. Yeah. I mean, at this point in time, you know, um, uh, you know, I've, I'm 40 now, so I've, I've known some of my, uh, some of my oldest friends now I've known, I guess, probably since college. Yeah. And, uh, so that's been, it's been a while, Yeah. Uh, but at the same time too, you know, um, I, I'm, I, I would say that the only people that I've known for such a long time, other than my family that I'm really close to are people that, um, I have known since actually, I think in a way my oldest friend is, uh, links Bilden, who's part of, or people who are involved in the primitive skills world, which yeah. is the only people that I really know very well from for over such a long period of time because I'm not that close with my college friends anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, links. I'm interested in talking about perhaps a bit later on, uh, oh, sure. fascinating, uh-huh. fascinating person and, uh, really excited to get into that, but, but maybe a bit more context first. Uh, you talked about your namesake already. Uh, I believe I've listened to uh, a talk of yours where you mentioned being, part of the smallest, you know, ethnic minority in the United States, your, your family being the only Nanai people in the States, at least at the time. Oh yeah, actually. So it turns out that that, that turns out that that's not true. I have, ah. uh, I've, I've turned out, um, to have met, um, another Nanai family. Yeah. A- and, um, also I guess, um, technically our, our neighboring culture who, um, share, uh, our, almost have like a dialect of our language. Yeah. Um, I have old, old family friends um, that their family is also here in the United States. And so um, it wouldn't surprise me if there's uh, uh, even uh, other Ulchi here as well. Right, right. Yeah, but th- yes, there's not a whole lot of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what What did it mean to you being uh, Nanai as you grew up? Like how was that looked upon at home, at school? And, and how did that change over time perhaps? Um, you know, it wasn't, I have to say being an, I wasn't a big deal when I was growing up for the most part, because my parents are immigrants, but also they're mainly Chinese, you know, so, so, um, ethnically speaking, um, I'm one quarter and I, uh, my grandmother, my mom's side is Nanai, and the rest, everyone else is, um, Chinese. And so they were, my parents were dealing with being um, a generation that was basically at the edge of the time when they were dealing with the communist revolution mm-hmm. and dealing with the, the cultural revolution in China. And when they came to the U.S., they were essentially refugees, you know, not quite like full on refugee status anymore. Um, by, by that time, they had already you know, moved to Taiwan and uh, you know, lived in Taiwan and, and grown up there. And so they, they were safe enough, but they were dealing with the repercussions of the communist revolution, um, over in Taiwan and my parents, parents, you know, our grandparents were deeply affected by it. So all of that's really was the main thing they were thinking of when they moved here to the United States. And so for them, it was all about survival. You know, coming to the U S they were keeping their heads down and they were doing, then they carried over the, the values yeah. of what it was like to be Chinese rather than um, anything else. And so when they were in China, they were dealing with all of this, um, all of this war and um, essentially, you know, 
genocide and civil war mm-hmm. <laughs> in um, in China. And so um, they had to kind of, you know, you, you, have, you end up taking sides, you know, and everyone who you're a refugee with um, in Taiwan, you know, kind of share that, that, that same level of, of identity. And at the time, too, it was really uncool to be an indigenous person. Um, back in the 1960s, uh, when my parents were growing up over there, they learned very quickly uh, that it was not a cool thing to be an indigenous person. You know, it wasn't looked upon highly. The communists themselves were not treating um, indigenous people well. The racism was really rampant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and in a way, that's it has less to do with racism outright as it has to do with the the, um, the national identity of China. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really old. It's almost the, 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 the central origin story of China. Um, so this is one of the hard things, uh, hard, uh, tough things for people to understand from the outside about China is that uh, ultimately China believes that it came together under an emperor who brought all these different warlords and warring states together um, from like a period of just constant war. And in the process, they got everyone to put down their weapons and get together and find peace through a shared, you know, economic interests and so they're just a shared weariness of being at war all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that kind of sense of peace, like everything, all our differences must be set aside at all costs in order to have peace. And thus, and the way to accomplish that is through. A communal interest, like to, uh, to, the way to accomplish that, is to for everyone to assimilate and to adopt the values of the Han people, who are who are essentially. When you say Chinese now, yeah. almost everyone thinks of the Han, which yeah. is the ethnic majority of China. So for for the Han, um, essentially, China became essentially the Han. You know, yeah. uh, uh, that that became the dominant uh, ethnic majority. And then at the same time, too, um, that became the the national vision, you know, the origin story. Like we all set aside all our differences to become Chinese, a.k.a. Han. And um, as a result, now we have peace and prosperity. And um, don't make a fuss, everyone. Keep your heads down. Learn the same language. Learn to read and write Chinese. And um, we will all get along. And as a result, we'll all have peace and stability, and you can see that that is the it's the same narrative that continues today, yeah. uh, which the communist government has actually taken and made into a <laughs> a way bigger deal. Right, right, <laughs> it, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've used it as an excuse to to um, crack down on all the things that they see is making things unstable. But it's been really bad for human rights for sure. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like Confucianism in a in a way, right? The this idea of kind of lesser focus on the individual and in place of that the the focus on the collective uh, yeah i think um confucianism definitely uh, confucianism as a sort of like guideline for ways to live yeah all of that is definitely related in some way confucianism um is definitely definitely plays into that national narrative in that way too for sure yeah yeah so regardless, survival is what your parents, you know, coming to the United States were thinking about and and there's probably that ingrained notion, right, of of wanting to blend in and uh, and not stand out in any way, right? So so that's yeah. kind of what's influencing um as you're moving around and coming to the States. Yeah. 
certainly, certainly. Yeah, for for them, life was you know it was a it was really tough when they moved to the United States. It was a it was a tough time for them. They didn't speak the language. Um, English is hard for Chinese speakers to learn, <laughs> and the uh-huh. reverse too. But yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's it's probably about the same, <laughs> uh, going both directions. And um, yeah, so it was uh, it, it was tough for them, and they were trying to make their lives a little bit easier. But but really, in a lot of ways, their values became very solidified. Uh, it, their Chinese values became even more solidified because they were living in a foreign land, you know, and mm-hmm. so um, they wanted to keep their identities. Right, right. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned your grandmother already. What, what was she like? Uh, how did she shape who you are today? My grandmother was uh, an amazing person. Um, in the time that I, I knew her, um, she, to a large extent, she raised me. Um, my parents were gone a lot. They were always, they were changing their careers. Um, my dad was an engineer and so we kept moving, you know, that's one of the reasons we kept moving growing up. And then my parents decided at the age of 30 that they were going to switch and go into, um, into medicine. And so then they had to go back to school and do a whole bunch of other stuff. And in the process, my my brother and I were already around, so um, my grandmother uh, raised me and my brother quite a lot, um, especially um, especially me. But even before my brother was born, my grandma was um, uh, cared for me when um, I lived over in uh, Manchuria and then also in the United States too. And so I spent a lot of time with her um, as a, as a young child, and then she was. Um, she was always telling me stories. Um, my mom also told me stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, she liked to, to tell me a lot, a lot of our kind of like folk tales, um, especially uh, the Chinese stories of monkey, which are pretty famous. Um, but my grandmother used to, to tell me a lot of stories of the Amur River and uh, other Nanai uh, folk tales, which is a really big part of the Nanai, um, Nanai culture. So yeah, it was, uh, it was really great. Having her raise me, um, I think, because I was able to get a lot of that cultural transmission through her. And I didn't even realize it at the time. You know, as a kid, I was just like, oh, these are really cool stories. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever she told a story, I would just sit down and and (laughs) uh, really pay attention. You know, it was like a good, good bedtime story, sort of, you know, like wrapped with attention sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're moving around from Maryland to Manchuria and Queens, is, is your grandmother coming with you or is she more rooted in one place? No, yeah, she would come. She would come with. Um, she'd move with, and then, but she she was moving back and forth. So she she'd go back and forth to to, to China, and then I was also going back and forth to China. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit unclear to me. I don't. My memory <laughs> isn't good enough to really remember um, how often uh, all of us were going back and forth where to. But but there was definitely a lot of traveling. Yeah. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Like when you were a teenager, what what did you think you were going to grow up to be? <laughs> um good question um i think as a teenager i probably still was thinking that i was going to be a pilot okay <laughs> <laughs> i yeah i really i wanted to be um of all things i wanted to be like a helicopter pilot um i don't know i i, I guess uh yeah i i was really um into the idea of flying and all of that i, I certainly didn't have any vision that i was going to um end up doing the things that I do now. <laughs> uh-huh. 
So were you doing like any kind of Microsoft Flight Simulator at the time or uh, what? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember that. I remember that. You brought back some memories just, just talking about that. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some Microsoft Flight Simulator in my life um, and I, uh, a lot of like flight simulator video game type things. Um, I actually went to like um, sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, kind of, I guess you would say it's like a pilot training school in in the southeast. I think it was in Georgia mm-hmm. uh, for a summer, and it was like a, an aviation camp kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, for for high schoolers that are really interested in uh, becoming a pilot. So, uh, and that was one of I think the one of the most fun things I ever did as as a kid, as a teenager, is to be able to get out of the house, be it it's uh, be at camp with a bunch of boys running amok and then um but there you know there was actually some there was some structure to it you know it was kind of based around um like a military flight school and so you know you had bunks and discipline and all that kind of stuff and it ended with uh like top gun style dog fights after they we spent a lot of time flying around <laughs> in simulators and stuff it was really fun <laughs> yeah it was it was really fun it's one of those things i look back on and i'm like wow i would have turned into a really different person had a had i actually become uh, like a military pilot, which um, I'm, I'm glad I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm glad I didn't, but that was because of my vision more than anything else. It's not. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. You, you don't have the 2020. Uh, yeah, to, that's that right. Needed, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> no, yeah, that's a that's kind of a non-starter. So, so if high school and, and teen years were kind of thinking pilot, uh, what about when you went off to college? What what was the major then? Um, yeah, I think. Once I went to college, I started spending more time doing stuff. I, I, I got involved with the College Explorers Club, which is um, spent a lot of time outside and rekindled my love for being um, outside in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did a lot of that when I was like sort of a, an early teenager and younger. My grandmother would always like uh, get us outside and outside playing and doing stuff. And I, I spent so much time chasing insects and uh like um, I even made my own butterfly nets and like raised things in aquariums. You know, it catch stuff in the creek in the backyard and then bring them, bring them into the house. Um, and it, it, there were some I, I have some really like vivid memories of doing all kinds of weird things. Like, um, you know, I made like a little fish weir in the backyard creek. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I shouldn't even know where I got the idea for that. And I think about it, it must have come from my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> were there were there fish in the backyard you could fish for? The, um, not really. It was this kind of a smallish creek. I mean, yes, there were definitely fish, but they weren't like fish that you would catch um, like on a rod and reel, yeah. you know. But uh, a fish weir worked. It trapped everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, like, I, I remember actually um, one time I, I caught a crayfish, um, a, a pretty large crayfish, and I took it back to the and um, to my house, and then threw it in the aquarium because I wanted to, you know, I thought it'd be cool for it to live in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then was horrified as it promptly um, swam to the bottom and then killed every fish in the in the tank in about oh, no. 30 seconds. It was just this mayhem. It was just flurry. All the fish would swim by like, what is this creature? And then it just turned into little fish, fish bits in just oh. a second. Had you had you named your fish too, so that you you know you've given your fish names, and now you're just watching them kind of getting eaten one by one. 
Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I have floating bit one and floating bit yeah. two. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> oh, brutal, brutal. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of horrified to think about it. I just remember the flurry of of of, of blood and white bits floating around. <laughs> so you're saying you're getting more and more connected to the outdoors uh, as you're going off to college. Uh, what when did that bleed into photography, or or what was the what was the thinking process then of what you might do? you know, when you were in university? Uh, you know, photography came to me much, much later, actually. Um, there was a, I, I took a, I did a, um, a one semester of photography class and that was it. Um, it, and I did find it really interesting, but, uh, you know, that was the, that, those were the days of, um, film and black and white. And, um, I did a little bit of shooting on my dad's film camera, but ultimately I didn't really stick with it. Um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but photography never really became a part of my existence other than just like for that very brief moment in time until much, much later. I didn't start becoming a photographer until I was, I was in my 30s. And when that did start happening, that was mainly because I was a, a kayak builder um, and I wanted to find a way to uh, photograph trips that I was paddling out on. Yeah. It's really epic locations, uh, including Victoria. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Well, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Uh -huh. A lot of, a lot of kayaking between, uh, between Seattle and Victoria and, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of Gulf islands to kayak around. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Vancouver Island, I would say actually has probably um, been my, my playground and proving ground for, as a, as a sea kayaker for, um, that it's been, the, that's been the most formative area uh, place where I've paddled. Um, I, some years ago I did, um, a huge trip from Port Hardy all the way in the north down to Victoria over 30 days and um, just did it living off the land. And that was one of the uh, best trips I've ever done. It was also oh, really yeah. difficult. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can imagine. Was that along the eastern shore then of, of the island or did or the western Oh, no. The, um, I, I did actually uh, what they call the, uh, the outside passage to so the, the, uh, the western coast of yes. the Pacific side, yeah. um, which was much more fun, I think, um, uh -huh. than the eastern coast. Most people do the, the inside that's protected from the ocean. But yeah. Uh, um, I, you know, the thing is the inside doesn't have those enormous, glorious beaches. Mm. Um, the wind kind of funnels through the fjords in the, on the inside. And so you get these like, uh, really intense winds and then the fjords are often really long and, um, samey, samey, yeah. <laughs> um, whereas in the West coast, um, the West coast has just all of this amazing, all these amazing beaches and headlands, um, and uh forests that are just stunning epic landscapes and very few people really get out to them like once you get from central vancouver island like tofino um yeah. north there's just not a lot of of anything uh, yeah. i remember paddling uh, for like a 10-day stretch and there was no sign of human activity for 10 days mm -hmm. which is incredible there wasn't even i don't even remember seeing a plane in the sky during that period of time, which is just incredible to think about. Mm -hmm. So you were, I mean, you are as well a kayak builder. How did the kayak building start and, and how did that lead into photography work? Well, um, yeah, I, when I first began building kayaks, actually, it was just, uh, I had, I've been thinking a lot about kayaks and, and I, at, at the time, I, I didn't even I, I didn't even realize that, um, that that was, you know, a part of part of my heritage. So, um, I started building 
during a time when skin-on-frame kayaks were undergoing a renaissance. So, so people um, from outside of traditional kayak building cultures were creating these traditional kayaks. And I, and I ran into a guy who um, had taken a workshop some years earlier from one of the, I guess you could say, the fathers of the kayak renaissance um, here in the Northwest. And he taught me how to build uh, a, an, an Aleut Vidarka or um, technically an Unangan Ichyak, but, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it, you know, uh, a seagoing kayak um, from the Aleutian Islands. Yeah. Uh, and I built one of those things and was just completely smitten by the grace and the beauty of the vessel, you know, and just how much, you know, it felt like it was bringing this thing to life. Because when you build a kayak, you start by building this skeleton. You know, you build this skeleton, you rib it, and then when you're looking at the frame as it comes together, as it comes to life, you're looking at a skeleton as it looks like um, like a, a whale skeleton on a beach. You know, it's a, like the, the similarity is striking. It's like um, uh, uncanny, you know, looking at marine mammal skeletons and looking at the skeleton of a kayak. You know, and so um, I, I built this kayak and I just brought it to life. We skinned it, um, which means covering the, you know, the outside in the skin and then sewing it up. And then went paddling, and um, very shortly <laughs> after paddling this this kayak for the first time, uh, I had only put the boat on the water like two or three times, and I went out on the Columbia River and caught two huge salmon from it. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, this is it. <laughs> it, it just like completely changed my life the 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 building of the boat and then uh uh catching this fish changed my life and made me want to build kayaks and so i started building uh, building lots of them um and it wasn't shortly thereafter just a couple of years after i started building my after i built my first kayak i had built oh i don't know probably like 30 kayaks or something like that at that time and i started teaching you know I, at first i taught friends how to do it we go to the like re reclamation lumber yard and we'd sort of look for clear old growth wood that was reclaimed from old structures and stuff like that mm -hmm. buy it that stuff for really cheap and then we'd <laughs> i ran a workshop wherein we'd spend these 15 hour grueling days building mm -hmm. these kayaks <laughs> uh, um, uh, but that was the beginning of uh, of my foray into building kayaks as a profession also. So um, I learned as I started to build more and more replicas of boats um, from around the Arctic and subarctic regions. And then eventually it brought me home. It eventually building kayaks from these different regions made me realize, oh, actually I'm from this place. Mm. Uh, and kayaks actually come from here as well. And eventually over time with additional research, I came to realize that kayaks actually started from my homeland. So um, the Nai people created essentially what were the precursors to the modern kayaks hmm. uh, in shape and form. And so the, uh, our, our kayaks are actually skinned with bark rather than, rather than uh, the skin of seals because um, we are one of the through a quirk of geography, we live in a place that essentially has an Arctic climate, but still has trees. And so we, we're using bark, which is um, easier to come by uh, and, yeah. than, than skins to, to, to wrap our kayaks. But, you know, all of those things kind of connected for me. And then I, I began uh, building so many kayaks and then teaching. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So you've got a, a small business going, building kayaks, teaching how to build kayaks, and I'm guessing now, so you need you need to take pictures of these things to then be able to market yourself. Is that is that how photography begins, or what? what yeah, was the yeah. Introduction um, there. Yeah, it was a simultaneous thing. Uh, like um, I was also a designer, you know, so my fledgling kayak business. I was uh, working as a graphic designer also, and um, a lot of times I just needed to take photographs uh, for clients as well. So I was falling in love with photography that way. But those were terrible photographs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then um, where where I was, so that I was learning some of the technical aspects of it that way. But the thing that really did it for me was when I would go out on these epic adventures in my kayaks to these just these just amazingly beautiful places. And at this was like pre, this was early internet times. Mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, there was definitely pre-social media. So in order to share some of my adventures with people and then also to be able to market to people the trips that we were doing, yeah. um, I was taking photographs of all these beautiful places of these um, adventures and sending out like blog articles um, or like pictures in a, a mass email to a bunch of friends and stuff about yeah. what I was up to. And that's where I really fell in love with it. Uh, how bad did the website look in those early days? If we're talking early internet, you know, you've seen seen some pretty brutal uh, early internet <laughs> examples. <laughs> well, I, I'm proud to say that I never had a single animated GIF flag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there may have been blinking text that might have happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that's a good, good, good introduction to, yeah, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> when are you starting to go out? I mean, this is fast forwarding a little bit, but when are you starting to go out from, from starting to take pictures to then, uh, making it a career and, and, um, seeing the world through a camera lens? Um, at some point, I think, um, I started to get into, uh, flash photography or photography using artificial lights, uh, through a website called Strobist. Strobist is this amazing resource that was developing uh, early on when the internet was exploding with, you know, kind of like how-to stuff. And um, I got really fascinated by our artificial light and, and the ability to sort of manipulate light. And as a result, um, I started doing more portraiture and um, all this kind of stuff that artificial light really lends itself to. And in, in the process, I decided, you know, um, I would like to make a go of this thing of making photographs to make a living. But, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking that I was going to do it full time necessarily. But, you know, I started to get more enthralled by this idea. Um, I was also maybe getting a little burnt out on, on building kayaks, too. I, mm. Since I was doing so many workshops at the time, you know, six to eight workshops in a year, of which they're two weeks long and they're pretty intense, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, and a lot the, the workshops are never the same, but I, at their core, once I started to really get them developed and refined, they weren't changing that much um, either, you know. So the challenges, the, a lot of the really intense and original challenges were starting to diminish, you know. Um, and so I started to get in, into photography and um, became a photography assistant. Um, I moved to Seattle and started to assist some Seattle commercial photographers. And then eventually, through luck, I guess, um, I ended up assisting at REI, which is a big outdoor brand. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I assisted there for about a year and then started shooting uh, and for them as well. And around that time, uh, uh, REI decided to go in-house with all of their photography. So they're no longer hiring freelancers. Um, and at the same time, you know, uh, after working there for a year with, under this really sort of intense uh, 
intense thing of shooting commercial photography. I was not necessarily getting burned out, but it was more like I was kind of uh, getting disillusioned with commercial photography. Mm -hmm. um, I think just the way that it's done too, I was doing a lot of work that was like heavy compositing, a lot of retouching and stuff and um, spending a lot of time in front of the computer. My eyes were starting to bug out and I felt like maybe I was just doing a lot of selling things to people, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, ultimately, you know, and so it's just like, oh, I don't really know about this. And so I was talking to a consultant at the time about how to, uh, you know, a career consultant. Um, uh, there are a lot of special specialized photography career consultants. And uh, she was an amazing woman to the former director of photography at Rolling Stone. So she she had been around the block and seen it all, you know, and and um, she basically looked at my my work and said, this is all technically very competent and you have a good eye, but the stuff lacks soul, you know, like it doesn't move me. And, um, and she was like, you're such an interesting person. And, you know, like uh, I don't really think of myself necessarily as an interesting person or I certainly didn't at that time hmm. um, just because that's all you know when you you are who you are you generally think any differently of yourself yeah. you know that's all yeah. you know <laughs> yeah 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 right yeah so um, but she was like you're such an interesting person why don't you explore that in your photography and um, and I I thought well I I guess sure <laughs> um, and um, I started to move into documentary photography and started doing documentary photo projects of things that I found that were actually really fascinating to me. Um, like, um, the, one of the first major projects I did was on my own as a documentary photographer was working with links. Mm -hmm. I am, and exploring the side of primitive skills, which I knew so well, and the community and all of the people and all of these, the, the techniques and technology, I wanted, I guess, in a way to be able to bring this at this like kind of crazy, interesting subculture to the rest of the world. And um, so I started photographing um, during one of Lynx's projects, you know, at that time, I'd already gotten out of the primitive skills world to a large extent, you know, I, I wasn't doing that uh, nearly as much, but I reconnected with Lynx and uh, we went out and um, did some more projects on and that project really re rekindled or maybe kindled my love for documentary photography, which is to, there's no retouching, there's no altering the image after the fact, you know, that nothing changes. You just, you're just capturing these things as they happen and unfold. And it was so fun and so uh, liberating, you know, to, to be able to photograph and get everything right inside the camera, you know, to, for to figure out, to watch, to be some, uh, an observer, um, which is something I think really appealed to me anyway, as, as a person who's a, um, a hunter and fisherman and um, likes to live close to the land, observation is a huge part of that. You know, and so being a photographer is a natural extension of just being um, good at observation. Um, and so I uh, started taking those photographs and that, that project came out and immediately found success. So um, some some of the like influential photography uh, blogs like Feature Shoot um, picked it up right away and uh, started to get traction. And it, that story sold many times to various publications and uh, started to put me on the map in terms of uh, in terms of photography. Um, and it wasn't shortly thereafter that um, by accident, I ended up assisting National Geographic photographer Robert Clark, mm -hmm. um, who was an amazing guy. And he met 
uh, me and we hit it off right away too. I think he found me to be a really interesting person. You normally, I don't know, like your the amount of connecting you do with your assistants is pretty minimal. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, you know, he was um, in the Seattle area for just a short period of time. We work on this uh, few day assignment, and we connected. And he looked at my work and said, "Oh, hey, I'm going to send this off um, to my editors." And uh, you know that that. At the time, it had never even occurred to me in a million years that the, the idea of shooting for National Geographic, but that's when that, that started to unfold. Coming from the commercial yeah. world, you know, whether that's uh, working with REI or anything you were doing before to then doing more documentary-style photography, like what are the sorts of skills that you have to, to learn, the differences between the two? Um... Well, I, I guess as a documentary photographer, I think the the most important thing you need to do. Well, okay, so you, you definitely it's important to hone the craft of photography. I I have often kind of caught myself talking about how important it is to have good vision as a photographer, but I I, I also I have also realized that I've often forgotten to include how important the technical aspect of photography is because once you get good at the technical side of it, it just becomes second nature and you just forget about it. Mm. You know, so you never think about it again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about technical things, mm -hmm. um, uh, unless it comes to very specific things I want to capture, like using a camera trap, which is very technical, uh, which means like setting up a remote camera to photograph wildlife passing by. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or something like that. You know, there are certain types of photography that are very technical. Underwater is very technical, so you have to think about a lot of these technical issues. But um, largely, when I think about f um, working on a photography story or a project or something like that, I'm not thinking about the technical aspects hardly at all. Yeah. I'm not thinking very much about um, what is the story that I want to tell and why is it of interest? Uh, what are the themes and um, how is it going to reveal itself photographically? I am so uh, I would say that the, the first thing that's important to do is to get good at the to get good at the craft of photography. That means just a, that means a lot of practice, you know, going out and shooting um, but not just going out to shoot out on the street and just around your home, you know, just shooting your, uh, uh, photographing your kids and family and all that kind of stuff. I would say it's good to also practice in the sense that you need a project. Hmm. So, um, to create a project, meaning go and photograph something. And then as you photograph, you start to see these themes in your work. You start to see, when you look back at your photographs, your favorite ones, you start to see the things that you really love to photograph, that you're drawn to, you're passionate about. And those things um, become these kind of hooks that eventually, when you look at them, you, you say, oh, wow, I am really interested in the relationships like between fathers and sons, for example, you know, if you're photographing on the street and you find yourself at home with a lot of photographs of people who happen to be fathers and sons, or I am really interested in, you know, like photographs that are funny, for example, like fruit that looks like other things, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's any sort of invariably people are drawn to this or that. And, and even when people aren't really like thinking of themselves as that 
as a photographer per se. I, I think that when people, even when people are taking pictures on their smartphones, that this that that there's a certain sensibility. Who you are is it comes out invariably in the kinds of photographs that you take and the ones that you like that you've taken. And so once you start to see those themes, it's good to make a project out of it. So um, let's just say that like the whole theme of like fruit uh, looking like other things. Um, so I've got like a whole bunch of pomegranates that look like, I don't know, volcanoes. Yeah. Uh, and so now I'm going to go out and now take pictures of oranges and macro and they can look like moon landscapes or, uh, you know, start to just like go out and find more and more of these things and produce enough photographs by practicing and working on a particular towards a particular objective you know um, with a particular idea that brings all those photographs together and so that project takes on a life of its own you know after a while you're like everywhere you go you know every friend's house that you walk into every store that you walk into and there's a piece of fruit you're like wow oh, what could this be you know and then you buy the fruit or you photograph it there on site or whatever it is and then eventually it becomes a project and that project is a great way to practice your technical aspects because you'll be learning how you need to photograph, whether you need, um, in the case of fruit, whether you need light, you know, um, or if it comes to people, whether how, what you need to set, how you need to set your camera, you know, what kinds of camera settings you'll need, um, what kinds of equipment you need in order to be able to photograph people. If it's animals that you love and you want to photograph wildlife, then it starts to get really technical. You're like, oh, what kinds of lenses do I need? Do I need to be able to find um, like a blind or something that I can hide behind so that I can wait for animals to show up? Um, all these sorts of things as you kind of begin to practice you learn and figure out along the way. Um, and then of course, lots of people learn through things like YouTube, et cetera. So there are all these resources to go to. Uh, and ultimately that's the way of like refining the craft and that, that portion of it never ends. But ultimately that that's the, that's the beginning. You know, I would yeah. say once the, the, you start to hone that craft, then the next part that comes into it is the vision, which is to look at the things that really draw you and to figure out what kinds of stories you want to tell and why you want to tell them, you yeah. know? Um, and so that one project becomes another project, um, you know, and you get more intentional and, um, and have better intuition about how to formulate your projects. And that's the, the most important part. You know, it's, I think in a lot, to a large degree, figuring out your photographic identity which is we were ta we've been talking so much about identity. Um, it's the same process in a way, you know, how you find yourself as a human being, how you define yourself, like who am I? Um, how do I present myself to the world? That's very much the same kind of idea with photography too. Like who I am, uh, what am I? And it's very intuitive too. You know, you don't really think to yourself when you're a teenager and you're becoming a skater, like, oh, I want to be a skater, like. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much how much intentionality there is to that. It's just like, oh, skating is cool. I really like this. I want to keep doing this. And, and I want to hang out with my friends who are skaters slash maybe I think someone is cool and uh, they skate. So I want to skate, you know, and you're just sort of drawn inexplicably by your intuition to those things. And so um, ultimately, it's the same thing with photography. Inexplicably, there are certain kinds of things that you're drawn to, your intuition pulls you towards. And um, uh, when you graduate from your intuition pulling you towards single images to being pulled towards 
projects and stories around uh, to create a whole body of work, that's when you that's when you've hit the big time. That's when that's when you know that your work is graduating to another level. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and most of all, tell someone else about it. This episode is only the beginning. Part two of Keeley's story comes tomorrow. We talk about survival skills, animism, and what it's like to haul a whale out of the water. Theme music for Story Untold is by Dr. Turtle, off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.